All right, if you are in kindergarten through fifth grade, why don't you come up here? If you are a three through five-year-old, you can line up in the back to go to your class. If you are new here and you don't know where your kid is going, you are more than welcome to go down with them, check that out, and then come back up here when you feel comfortable. So before I get into my manuscript today, I want to make sure I, I point this out. This is something that I think is important for us to do sometimes, but I stand before you a hypocrite. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, last week when I got up here, I said I felt really run down, really run down. And by the end of that sermon, I felt like I had got hit by a truck. And by that evening, I had got, I was very, very sick, right? And uh, basically spent most of the day, Sunday evening and into Monday morning, uh, laid up in bed. This happened because I allowed myself to get run down by the busyness of life. Two weeks ago, I had said, we wear busyness like a badge and it's not good. Right? I faced the consequences for my actions, and man, I ask that you forgive me uh, for standing up. It's easy to say these things sometimes, but it's a lot harder to live them out. Am I right? That's right. So, forgive me. <laughs> I am a hypocrite sometimes. Um, but I still have some congestion. I'm feeling a lot better. Uh, because I'm part of the football staff at the school and because Annie was traveling, I did get tested. Did not have COVID, so thank, thank God for that. Uh, but I'm also glad to be able to be here with you today and uh, wrap up this series. Who's excited to, to wrap up this series? How many of you have enjoyed it? Hopefully most of you. It's been, it's been a good series. It's been a timely series, I feel like. Um, and I'm excited to kind of bring to you this last chapter in the book of Habakkuk. It's been really, really good. And so if you've missed the last couple sermons, I'm going to start it out just like the, the same way that I have the, the, the last couple weeks. If you've missed... The previous three sermons, I encourage you to go back and listen to those because this is the climax. This is the end. This is, this is the great conclusion to this book. And, and honestly, I think that title is fitting. It is a great conclusion. How he wraps this book up is so fitting, and there's so much truth embedded within it that I'm excited to share it with you. So you could catch those on YouTube or you can look at those at iTunes, but either way, I encourage you to go back and look at them. In this book, we've seen some excellent dialogue between God and the prophet Habakkuk. Israel has been in a bad place for some time due to corrupt leadership at every level. Habakkuk sought the Lord for discipline or judgment, but he was displeased when God answered him the way that he did. He did not get the answer that he was looking for. This kind of seems to be a common theme with God with us, right? He did not get the answer that he was looking for. In some ways, he was hoping for a slap on the wrist. Hey, scare them into submission, God. Let's get this over with and move on. But God said, no, the discipline is going to be much more harsh than this. I'm gonna create change that lasts not just for now, but lasts for time to come. The book culminates in verse four of chapter two, where God gives Habakkuk both a promise and a command when he says the righteous or the justified by his trust he shall live that's the more literal translation but the simple way to translate that is how Paul uses it in the New Testament and that is that the righteous shall live by faith I want to make sure I clarify this today I'm going to be using the word faith and trust interchangeably uh, the, the 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 translators of this book did that and I feel like it's appropriate to do so so faith and trust will be used interchangeably Habakkuk was proud. He said, God said, Habakkuk, the proud will puff up their chest, 
but don't worry about them. They will get theirs. You, on the other hand, live by faith. If you want to know what they were going to get, that's what we talked about last week in the five woes where they said the pillagers, well, they're going to be pillaged. The fortified, they're going to be dismantled. The civilized, they're going to be demoralized. The, shape, the, the, the shameless will be defamed and the idolaters will be exposed for what they really are. Chapter two ends with a declaration of God's presence in Jerusalem and a call to silence, a call to humility. As if he was assuring Habakkuk and those whom he would communicate with, guys, I got this. It's going to hurt. You're not gonna like every part of it, but I am here and I am in control. We have seen that throughout the course of this book. And so that brings us to chapter three. As you would expect, chapter three is much different than the previous two chapters. But it might contain some of the most important examples or the most, one of the most important examples in the Old Testament of following God that, we, that I have ever seen or ever had a chance to preach on. There's some pr profound truth wrapped up in these 19 verses. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Habakkuk chapter three. I say this again, it's important for you to follow along the best you can. This is a chance for you to underline, highlight, and the truth is, if you want to put some verses to memory, there's some really good ones in here to do so with. So open up your Bibles. And as you're turning there, I want to take a minute and talk about something. I was talking about Ty to Ty Zimmerman over there uh, at football practice one night about what I was planning on entitling this sermon. If you haven't seen it already, I entitled this sermon, In God We Trust. Now, I'll be honest with you, I was reluctant to entitle it that because of some of the things that can be associated with using American, I guess, uh, mottos or, or things about America in sermons. I do not want to detract from what's being said in these verses, but I think it's important to understand what Habakkuk is trying to communicate, and I think that phrase sums it up very, very well. The last thing I want to do is deter from what, what I am getting ready to say and what the Word of God is going to clearly communicate, and so I want to be clear. This statement in God we trust should be so much more than American motto in the life of a believer. It should be a way of life. Has anyone looked into actually where this phrase came from or why it's on our coins or on our money to begin with? You can find this information pretty easily. It's right on our treasury's website. In the 1860s, there was a man named Salmon P. Chase. He was the secretary of the treasury. He had received many appeals from devout persons throughout the country. This is straight from the website, urging that the United States recognize the deity on its coins. As a result, Secretary Chase instructed James Pollock, the director of Mint in Philadelphia, to prepare a motto. And in 1861, and this is a snippet from the letter, this is what he wrote to that, uh, to that director. No nation can be strong except in the strength of God or safe except in his defense. The trust, our people, the, the trust of our people in God should be declared on our national coins. And in 1863, uh, director of, of, uh, the director of the Mint um, responded and said, here's what, I, here's what we're thinking about putting on here. Our country, our God, or God, our trust. And that'll appear. And then in 1863, Chase responded to him and said, I approve of your models, only suggesting that, on, that the Washington observe the motto should begin with the word our, so as to read our God and our country. And on the shield, it should be changed to read in God we trust. And on April 22nd, 1864, in God we trust, first appeared on a, on a the two cent coin. So here's my question. This phrase is so iconic. 
Some people would say that it's fundamental to who we are as a nation, but have you ever really taken time to think about what that phrase really means? Have you ever taken time to really analyze what does it mean for a person or people to trust in God? What does that look like? I want you to keep that question rolling around in your head because we are gonna unpack what biblical trust, biblical faith really looks like. And in Habakkuk chapter three, Habakkuk displays a trust that transcends anything that we could fathom or imagine, a a faith and a trust that we are called to but by the power of God. He is a prime example of what this looks like. So let's pick it up in verse one of chapter three. Starts off like this, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shiganoath, it's a really weird word, but it's important. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath, remember mercy. The first verse obviously declares that this is a prayer, but I will tell you it's more than that. It's it's more than a simple communication to God. That, That second funny word indicates that this is a poem. We know this because of the structure of the verses that we're gonna end up reading, but then also we find the same word, the only other place we find it in scripture is in Psalm chapter seven, which reads, a shigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. The words, are about, the words we're about to read were meant to be used as a worship song in the temple. If you remember back to the first sermon where we unpacked who Habakkuk really was, he was a temple prophet. He would have sang these very songs while he led in the temple. They would have been sang by priests and congregants. Don't worry, I'm not gonna break out into song. That's the last thing you guys wanna hear, I promise. The way that this starts off should be no surprise, though. Habakkuk petitions God on behalf of his people. He has accepted the fact that destruction and turmoil are coming to his friends and his his people. But he asked that God would breathe life back into his people through this judgment and through this discipline, that the suffering would not be in vain. And God, like the loving father that he is, would continue to remind him of why they were there. This shouldn't be any surprise to you because we've seen him interact with God both in these two chapters. But if you go back to chapter two of, or chapter one in verse two, he says this, oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. Habakkuk, didn't just pray to God one time, right? The first time we read these words in the first chapter of this book is not the first time that he had brought these issues before God. He had done it continually so long that, so long that he lamented to God, how long must I cry out for help for you to listen? Could you imagine getting to that point where you're praying about something so much that you just throw your hands down and you say, God, what is going on? Why aren't you listening to me? Habakkuk repeatedly went to God and pleaded with him on behalf of the faithful in Israel. It wasn't a one-time thing. This wasn't something that he did when things weren't going his way. This was a defining characteristic of Habakkuk. What we learned from his example is this, that biblical trust or biblical faith is built on communication. Our communication, our primary means of communicating with God is prayer. So what does your prayer life look like? A regular part of our lives should be spent in prayer. When we need 
or question or have something that we need to bring before him, we should do so. Outside of, stuff, outside of when stuff is just really hitting the fan, we often do not bring things before the Lord. Habakkuk was distraught about the way his nation was going, and it brought him to his knees. Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, he brought those things before the Lord. It wasn't just a one-time thing. It wasn't just a handful of times, but it was something that he did over and over and over again. How long, O oh Lord, how long must I cry for help? In James chapter four, we get kind of a, a picture of what a lot of people's prayer life looks like. What causes quarrels and fights among you? It is not this that your passions are at war within you. Your desire, you, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and can obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. When you do ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity to God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend to the world makes himself an enemy of God. Obviously, he's talking about something very specific there, but I think there's some truth that we can skip in the midst of all of that. You do not have because you do not ask. It's a very simple, very blatant truth. Do we ask? A lot of us are concerned about many things going on in the world right now, but how, what does that bring us to do? Does that bring us to our knees? Does that bring us to a place where we are crying out for God to do something about it? I'm sure you know this, but Jesus himself took time to actually pray to God. We read last week that he was God, but yet he still took time to petition God over and over again. In Luke chapter three, verse 21, it says this, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened up. In Mark 135, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. And in Matthew 30, in, in Matthew, in the book of Matthew, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane and he said to the disciples, sit here while I go over, go over here and pray. And you can actually go read the very prayer, the very prayers of Jesus in some of those cases. Prayer should be a regular part of our life, so much so that it, Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, uh, he calls the church to pray without ceasing. One commentator on these verses put it this way, to pray without ceasing can be confusing. Obviously, it cannot mean that we, we are, have our head bowed and our eyes closed posture all day. Paul is not referring to nonstop talking, but rather an attitude of God consciousness and God surrender that we carry with us all the time. Every waking moment is to be lived in an awareness that God is with us and that he is actively involved and engaged in our thoughts and actions. Listen to this. For Christians, prayer should be like breathing. You don't have to think to breathe because the atmosphere exerts pressure on your lungs and essentially forces it to breathe. That is why the more diff that's why it is more difficult to hold your breath than it is to breathe. Similarly, when we are born into a family of God, we enter into a spiritual atmosphere where God's presence and grace exert pressure or influence on our lives. Prayer is the normal response to that pressure. As believers, we have all entered the divine atmosphere to breathe the air of prayer. Prayer should be like breathing. It's not something that you have to think about. It's just something that you do. 
Biblical trust and faith is built on communication. Habakkuk knew who held everything together by the word of his mouth, and that is where he went when things went south. So where do you go? In verse 3, we kind of see the more poetic part of this song come together. And it reads this, God came from Taman, the holy one from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He, took, he looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers, the mountains saw saw you and withered, the raging waters swept on, the deep gave forth its voice, it lifted, it lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place, at the light of your arrows they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury and threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from the, high to, from the thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as it devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. There's a few things to note about this, this section of scripture. It's easy to miss if you're not looking for it. The first five verses are in the third person. He's talking about God. He's being descriptive about who he is. And in verse eight, there's a shift to second person where it becomes more of a dialogue with him, more of a prayer. You would think that there'd be two separate points to be made here, but man, he's making the same thought. The second thing that I think we have to notice about this section of scripture is the imagery that is just jam-packed within it. In verse three, Tamon is, Tamon is associated with Edom. You can read about this in Obadiah verse 9 and Amos 1 verse 2, verse 12. Perrin designates the desert area about Sinai and Egypt. Basically, it is a description of Israel going out from Egypt to Sinai to the promised land. In verse 4, we see God depicted as light. Light was considered the most pure element created in the universe. David in 2 Samuel 20, 22 verse 13 uses the same imagery to depict God's coming in brightness to destroy his enemies. The horn is an image of the concentration of power. When Moses came off of Sinai in Exodus 34, the word used to describe his face was actually horned, not bright shown. It was horned. It is the place, it is the only other place in the scriptures where this word is used, and it's used to describe the power of God that made Moses' face shine bright. Verse 5 refers to the plagues, it's, is, 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 is a reference to plagues, and it is referencing the plagues in Egypt as the pestilence, as well as the pestilence in Jeremiah that is referred to six times from chapters 14 to 27. In verse 7, we see a reference to Cushan, which arises 
as the first oppressors of Israel in Judges 3, 8 through 11. In verse 8, we see a reference to chariots, the same word used to describe what took the prophet Elijah up into heaven in 2 Kings chapter 6. 9 and 10 give imagery of the final act of judgment on Pharaoh and Egypt and the Red Sea. The marching in verse 12 is the same imagery used in Judges 5 when the earth trembles as the Lord marches. In verse 13, you see imagery of the head of the house being crushed, a promise given to the serpent back in Genesis. At the beginning of the year, Ty gave a, a speech about, um, I, should, I, should, I should rewind. At the beginning of the year, the seniors came up with a word that they were going to use that was going to be the, the word that defined our football team uh, throughout the year, and that word was faith. That word was faith. Basically, they used it like trust, but the word was faith. And so at the beginning of the year, Ty gave a definition of what faith really is. It's not a blind faith. It's not how we often take uh, Hebrews, where it says, now faith is assurance of things hoped for, but the conviction of things not seen. But he talked about how we're called to a faith that is defined by evidence, that is defined by action, that it's not just something that we believe because we're told to believe it, but we believe it because there's evidence for believing it. What, what Habakkuk knew, why Habakkuk's trust was the way that it was, is because he knew God in a way that others do not. His trust, his faith, a biblical trust and a biblical faith is built on history or it's built on evidence. Habakkuk was deeply rooted in remembering how God had faithfully taken care of Israel and his people over the years and we must do the same. Habakkuk trusted God because he knew him and because God knew him. Do you know him? Maybe the, one of the reasons that sometimes we struggle with faith or trust is because we do not know him like he knew him. And some of you might be asking, well, how can I know him? It's not like he talks to me all the time. Well, guess what? We have his word. If you wanna know God, you have to spend time in his words. You get to read his very words in the Bible. Habakkuk didn't even have that. He might have had scrolls, but most of what he knew about God came through oral tradition, it being handed down from generation to generation like hunting stories around a campfire. The Bible in John chapter one refers to Jesus as the word. If you wanna be familiar with the God of the universe and his Messiah, the Messiah, the savior of our world, you must be familiar with his word. When we listen to God through his word, we build a type of trust that reflects that of Habakkuk. We must read, we must study, we must memorize, and we must meditate on the words to navigate this dark and broken world. I think there's a second truth wrapped up in these verses that would be easy to miss, and that is this, that biblical trust or biblical faith is built on hope. What is the one historical event that he seemed to reference quite a bit? It was the exodus and the taking of the promised land. In this song, Habakkuk calls on this imagery to give hope for what's to come. Habakkuk knew that there would be an ultimate king given through the line of David, David, and that he would lead a future exodus, freeing his people from the clutches of the prince of the power of the air. What Habakkuk didn't get to see was that promise come to fulfillment. But guess what? We know that it did. We know that Jesus of Nazareth came and lived a perfect life, was punished by death on a cross, absorbing the wrath that we deserved. And three days later, 
He was resurrected, thereby defeating the ultimate oppressor of humanity. Can I get an amen? Do we live with a similar hope to that of Habakkuk? We should live with a similar hope that God fulfills his promises and that one day Jesus will return and that creation will be restored. Sickness and tears will be no more because the world is as it should be. Every knee and every bow will confess that Jesus is Lord. The the declaration in chapter two, verse four, wasn't just a description of those in Israel, but it was those who follow God throughout history and into the future. Peter refers to this living hope in 1 Peter chapter one, verse three. Blessed be the God, our Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Living hope is anchored in the past. Jesus rose from the dead. It continues in the present. Jesus is alive. And it endures throughout the future. Jesus' promises are eternal through his his resurrection. Living hope also enables us to live without despair as we encounter the suffering and trials in this present life. Therefore, we do not give up even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Second Corinthians chapter four, verses 16 through 18. Habakkuk had a trust and a faith that was built on communication. God wasn't some distant being to him, but he knew him. He had a trust that was built on history and hope. Because he knew God, he was familiar with his character and his nature. He was familiar with his promises. God had been faithful to them in the past and he trusted that he'd be faithful to him in the future. There's one more characteristic I think that we have to unpack and so we're gonna jump into these last few verses here. Verses 16 through 19. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound of rottenness enters my, into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, and the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the saws. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like a deer. He makes me tread on high places. Gas prices could continue to climb. Unemployment could be skyrocketing. Our stock market could collapse. Our borders could be compromised. Our culture could be abandoning truth. Our government could be reckless. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. Do you trust him? Biblical trust and faith is lastly built on resolve. Because we communicate, because we have history, because we have evidence, and because we have hope, we have resolve. Resolve is defined as deciding firmly on a course of action. It does not matter what is going on around me. I will rejoice in you because you are bigger than all of this. You are the supreme being that is above all things. 
Job 13, 14 says this, though he slay me, I will hope in him. These have to be some of the greatest displays of trust in the Bible, but obviously the biggest display of trust is obviously Jesus in the garden. If there is any way for you to take this cup from me, please do it, but not my will, yours be done. Matt, you don't know what I'm going through. How could you possibly have the trust? If you knew what I've experienced or what I've seen or, or some of the things that I know, you wouldn't be saying that. And that's a fair criticism. I'll be honest with you, I've been pretty fortunate to not have to experience a lot of really ugly trials in my life. I've had people get sick. I've experienced some loss. Uh, but God has really blessed me in some ways that I know he hasn't blessed others. But the two things that I would say to you is, first of all, God surely does know what you're going through. Matthew 6, 8, directly before the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty praises like the Gentiles do, for they think they are heard for many words, but heap them up, heap them, but, and do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask. The context is obviously speaking about prayer as a status symbol, but he has a hidden truth in there that just says, God knows what you're going to ask before you ask it. Don't be like them. In Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, it says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and is, was yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God knows exactly what you've been through and he did not abandon you in those moments. Have resolve because God knows all things. Also have, res also have resolve because there have been many that have gone before you. Even though I have not gone through those things, there are many, I would say even thousands that have, that have experienced some of the same things that each of us have experienced and have come out faithful. Everything from abuse to loss to addiction to complacency to persecution, you name it, there have been Christians over the years that have endured it. And we can live by their example. In God, we trust. The justified by his trust, he shall live. The righteous shall live by faith. Do you believe that? Listen, my dad served for 20 plus years in the military. I literally have an American flag tattooed on my arm. I love my country. But in God we trust is so much more than a motto. It is so much more than that. And in the life of a believer, it's a powerful phrase that, should, that is not found verbatim in scripture, but we see hints of it all over the place. It should lead us into a deeper relationship with the God of the universe, let this phrase serve as a reminder, not about our nation or the country that we live in, but about those that have faithfully gone before us. Those who have faced imminent judgment, discipline, or persecution, but have resolved to glorify the one true God. Those like Habakkuk or Job or the disciples, but, also, but most of all, let it serve as a reminder about Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I can't think of a better way to wrap this up 
then to commune over our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who, again, for the joy set before him, endured, it, endured the cross and scorned its shame. In God we trust. Do you believe that?